What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Baltimore Guys. I'm your host, Bazil. Uh, during this whole COVID-19 pandemic, I hope you guys, you know, are doing well. I wish you all the best. and know that we'll come out of this together. Today, joining me on the podcast is the former director of studio operations at MTV and Sesame Street. And he's the first black owner of a sports franchise in New York history. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Corey Gallery. Corey, thank you, man, for joining me. I really appreciate it for your time. How are things going for you? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, pretty interesting times, obviously, that we live in uh, with COVID and sheltering at home. Uh, but, you know, it's a great time for opportunities, which I've been really working on looking at where opportunities lie. And it's been uh, pretty fruitful. But, you know, keeping the family safe and, you know, constantly working every day. So, you know, it's been a, a good rhythm to get into as far as, just being able to sit down and think. So yeah, it's been pretty good. Before we get into your ventures during this uh, pandemic, I just wanted to get, if you could let the listeners know a little backstory about you, what life was yeah. like growing up in New York, um, sure. and just telling us, you know, your backstory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I um, grew up in Brooklyn uh, and Bed-Stuy and East Flatbush. Um, went to public schools all my life. And you know, my dad's from Brazil and my mom's from South Carolina. So I had a mix of going to Brazil in the summers and then going down south for the summers. Mm. So that gave me a pretty uh, diverse background as far as my experiences of life. But I um, grew up in a low to middle income, uh, well not really, lower middle income to low income uh, place, uh, Vanderveer, called Vanderveer Project. So, you know, uh, all my friends there, still keep in touch with them and, you know, just had a, a constant curiosity of what is next in the world as I was growing up. So every time I accomplished one thing, it was like, all right, so what is next? What is next? What is next? So I remember, you know, when you grow up in, you know, low income housing and we lived on the sixth floor, luckily, and there was nothing I could see except for New York City and the stars. And so every night I'd look out and say, wow, you know, how far can you go? Like, can you really reach the stars? And that motivated me every night that I was home because it was one of those things that I would do, just look out the window and like dream. Uh, so from there, I uh, played football in high school and was getting recruited and didn't even know how I was going to figure out how to go to college. And I had a uh, a program out of Massachusetts that recruited me and they offered me uh, a scholarship. So that's how I got to college. I wanted to go to Syracuse, but Syracuse wasn't paying and my parents didn't have the wherewithal to send me to college financially. So I took advantage of the football scholarship and uh, ended up going to American International and majoring in economics and minoring in sociology. And that was a thing that really got me launched into thinking about supply and demand and was the world, you know, how's the world tick from a capitalist point of view? And so that's basically uh, my background in a nutshell. So, yeah. So for you to have that um, pursuit as far as a degree, you weren't really thinking about going to the next level 
uh, in pursuing sports. Whereas like for me, I was like, how can I get to that next level? I wasn't even worried about having a contingency plan of like what happens if I don't make that. Whereas you did, did that come from your family? Was that like a individual thing? Like how did you come up with that process of wanting to pursue something, knowing that there was more to life than sports? Yeah. So I think, um, my brothers all play sports. So my whole family, my oldest brother was in gymnastics, but my brother, two brothers before that both played football. And so kind of watched their cycle um, of going to college and my older brother that played sports, he had a trial with the Cowboys and he had been MVP in semi-pro leagues. And, you know, it just was, you could see it was hard to, get over that hump to get into the uh, NFL. And I guess what really made me understand, like I need to look at other opportunities or other options was my brother tried out for the Cowboys the first year Jimmy Johnson took over. And that was the first year they really started focusing on height, weight, and 40 time. Mm -hmm. And so when he went on for his tryout, let me say at least when he talked about it there, he said it was like uh, 100 people because there was no limit. And they made it really simple. They were like, all right, if you're this height and you're this weight, we you have to run this 40 or under. Otherwise, just go home. So that eliminated 95% of the guys that were going to try. <laughs> and what, for me, I was like, wow, okay. So I think I came out of college. My fastest time was a... Uh, Fast, if you say it fast, four seven, like a four seven one. I think I did a four six nine, maybe, but definitely a four seven one, and I was forty yard time. And I was like, all right, that's you know, when you come out and you're not that fast, and you don't have the means, right? If you have the means, you can work at your craft for a couple of years. You look at a lot of the uh, basketball players, and because there's so many options out there. You know they're able to work on their craft after college and football. Like even if you make the NFL, you're going to work. There is no going overseas. There is no D league. There's no minor league baseball. There's no you know it's either you make it to the NFL or you get a regular job. And so I wasn't able to obviously make it to the NFL or even get close to that. So there was no option of oh well I'm going to work on my craft for a couple of years and then I'll go trial for the NFL because I really needed to work. And that got me into, you know, I took a job as a management trainee in um, at this company called Finest Supermarkets. And they gave me an offer. <laughs> they gave me an offer in March, my senior year, to, you know, go into the management trainee program. And at that time, we're starting out at like $45,000 a year, which for me at 21, 22, I was like, yes, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, and so I did that for a year and a half, but along that way, it was uh, 12 hour days, six days a week, 12 hours was the minimum. You work 14 hours, supermarket, retail, you're working nonstop. So the pay was great, you know, but the time, it really was what's valuable to you, right? Is the money valuable to you or is your life valuable to you? Cause you can do, you can trade off, well, I'll be miserable at my job, but I'll make a lot of money. But if I'm miserable, miserable at my job and I'm making good money, am I really happy? Am I at peace with my life? And that's each individual's point of view. From my point of view, 
I couldn't work at the supermarket anymore because I was just miserable. I didn't care how much money they were paying me, to be honest with you. I was miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I ended up uh, saying, all right, what else can I do? At the time, I dated someone, and we were in a serious relationship, and she happened to move to New York along with me from Massachusetts. And she started working for this guy, um, P. Diddy, or Puffy at the time. Mm. And she was his first assistant. It was his first job. He just got a Howard, you know, left Howard. And I started hanging out with him and Andre Harrell and a couple other guys. And um, that's, and that was just casual, you know, relationships. And that's what really opened my eyes. Like, wow, these guys do phenomenally well. And how can I be like them? They're the same age, you know, we're all black, obviously. You know, how do I, you know, do something I love? Because, you know, obviously, Diddy's still doing what he loves. So it's, how do you do what you love? And that's what really pushed me into, all right, I'm not going to do the supermarket thing. I'm going to try and pursue something I love. And that got me into the business world. And I wanted to look into how do I marry my love for business with my love for sports and entertainment. And so that led me to um, Madison Square Garden, where I worked at the tent for a year and a half and worked with the Knicks and the Rangers and then got a call to work at MTV. And that was going to after that, you know, it set me up just on my business career. So speaking of MTV, can you tell me uh, what that experience was like for you? Because I work in the entertainment industry, so I know the hills and valleys that you have to go through with it. It's a very stressful uh, uh, part of field to work in. And, you know, for me, going to working 12 hours at the grocery store, you might be working 20 hours doing an, uh, an MTV. So yeah. can you tell me what that experience was like for you? Yeah, so... At MTV, I, was, um, I started out in accounting, so I was a production accountant, which basically meant uh, any show that was done from the beach house to spring break to winter break, these are all shows from the 90s, um, I was the accountant on, so I would travel uh, nonstop. And the first five years was amazing, obviously. I'm 24, you know, I'm like 25, I was single, you know, I had my own place. Me and the girls dating, we had broke up. So I was just enjoying life. I mean, I was bi-coastal for two or three of those years where I was between L.A. and New York. And, yeah, you're you're dead on. The hours were brutal, right, because you're on production, you're on set. And so we would, you know, um, (laughs) I had learned a valuable lesson from uh, one of my supervisors because we did a show in Miami. We're out in Miami. We go to a location for, like, three weeks, sometimes four weeks. And when, like you said, 20 hour days, but you know, I'm young at the time and I'm like, look, I'm in South beach. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy South beach. Right. You know? How long do but, I have to do this so I can go out to the beach? Exactly. Exactly. And so my manager got hit to that. So she was like, where do you think you're going? I was like, I'm done for the day. She's like, no, you're not. <laughs> and so, um, that got me into, all right, I'm in entertainment, but I got to be focused at doing my job to the best of my ability. And so, you know, then the locations became pretty static. You're doing the same job. You're in the office all day. And it's like, all right, we're in in Hawaii for like six weeks. We're in 
I go to summer to LA for about eight weeks, sometimes six weeks. We go to Colorado for you know, four weeks. What do you mean in the office all day? You know, you're working 20 hours a day. So it just became, all right, you know what? This is a, it's a job. And, you know, I have a good time because I can wear whatever I want. You know, you wear shorts and sneakers, whatever, you know, you want to wear. And everybody's cool. Everybody's your age. But they're not your people, right? So mm-hmm. it's like you're having a good time, but they're not your boys that you run with, you know. Especially in that... L.A. Right, right, you know. So, um, you know, it uh, it just became, you know, a job. And, well, I enjoyed it, obviously, because it was like, all right, we're going to get paid and still kind of hang out a little, you know, see celebrities, whatever, which has never been my thing. But, um I was able to put a lot of people on and kind of move through the ranks of going from production accountant to financial planner to business manager to director of operations. So the director, when I moved from finance to operations, that was a seismic shift in the entire structure of MTV because they had never did it before. Usually if you worked in creative, you were creative. So if you're in business, you're in, if you're in legal or finance, you're in legal or finance. Luckily, I reported, when I got to business manager, I reported to the presidents of each division. And so I had an offer to go to LA to work in development or stay in New York and work in animation. And I chose animation and cause I didn't want to move to uh, LA and I felt more stable in New York. Um, and so when I got into director of operations, that was, you know, that was different. I had 300 people reporting to me, which was a big, big difference from finance. And I was managing schedules, managing budgets. You know, I was a programming connect. So anything out of animation went through me from programming. If we did any special weekends, packaging, anything like that, I had to assign the producers. So that was way more complicated than what I did, but it was, Definitely, I learned more about the entertainment business and who makes real decisions when it comes to entertainment. And so that got me into understanding the politics in any business of how you know the options you may have that you think you have, you really don't have. And so how I learned from that is my boss and a new boss that came in didn't get along. And because my boss had discovered Beavis and Butthead, which was the biggest earner at MTV at the time. Right, yeah. They, you know, my boss could walk on water, like he could do no wrong. And so the new person that came in had discovered South Park. And so they brought him in at equal levels and then they promoted him into overseeing the animation division. And so my boss and him just didn't get along. I watched this play out because I was director of operations. So I, you so know, done all just sitting right, waiting and watching. Uh, yeah, they're going at it, they're going at it, they're going at it. And then I knew we were in trouble because I was like, all right, we need to do a presentation and we got to present to Sumner Redstone, Van Toffler, Tom Freston, Judy McGrath, and I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, we gotta present why animation is important. So that was basically, you know, the new boss coming in and saying, why are we doing animation, 
right? We should shut down the division. Really? Keep in mind, 300 workers right. in this division have no idea this is going on. That's They're how it usually goes. Right. What's that? That's how it usually goes. They're the yeah. last ones to find out. Yeah. They're busting it behind every day, you know, and it's like, wow, this is look. and I'm in the, I'm actually, you know, I have a bird's eye view of what's going on. I'm like, wow, this is not looking good. And, uh, you know, we presented, we thought we presented well. Obviously, he had a bigger influence on everyone that was in the room. And all of a sudden, we got an email. It was after 9-11, because I don't forget. And it was like, we're shutting down the animation department. And so 300 jobs went away just like that. Because two people didn't get along. That's ridiculous. Right, it's like, and it's an opinion base, right? It's not factual base. I mean, we have some good facts, but I can counter all your facts with. It's like an attorney. Mm-hmm. I can counter all your facts with counterfacts to prove my point. Right, and, and you, you can't win the, that battle. Right, you know, once you have the influence of the room. So in the uh, so that was one of the things that really one of my biggest drivers for me personally was when I learned that I was like, wow, you know. I had to, and I forget, I had to stand on a table um, in the animation studio floor to let them all, let everyone know that we're shutting down the studio and that everyone was losing their jobs. It wasn't even, like, it was so many people, it wasn't, you couldn't do a one on one. You know, it was just like 300 people, hey, you won't have a job anymore. Just like that. Just like that. Just like that. And so, um, I thought like, wow, you know, since that day, I said, I will never let someone control a hundred percent of how I make my living in my life. And that's, you know, I did some freelance stuff, um, produced a couple of films, a couple of directors, and, you know, that led me to go back to work to Sesame Street. But when I went to Sesame Street, it was night and day from when I went to MTV from a mentality point of view because I had about four or five different hustles on the side. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's Sesame. Well, within like Sesame Control, 100% of my right, income. Right. Now I was like, all right, I'm going to do this, but I'm not playing this game of I'm giving you 100% because you could tell me, hey, go kick rocks. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? And so um, after I went to Sesame, I uh, got them to pay for a couple of classes at Harvard, uh, met a couple other folks, um, strategic negotiations in another class. And then, you know, the one of the deans at Harvard was like, you should just come here and go to school. And I was like, all right, I, got, I already have my MBA. And cause I got my MBA while I was at MTV full upfront. They paid for that full upfront. That was one of the values I got at MTV. Wow. Paid for my MBA and then put out a dime. And they paid for all that upfront and they didn't even have to get reimbursed. So when I went to Sesame Street, I was like, all right, I'm gonna get some education here too. Right. So, you know, I went to look at, you know, a couple of classes that were available and ended up uh, doing these classes at Harvard Business School. And the dean was like, hey, we'd love to have you here as a student. And I was like, all right, I'm an MBA. And they put me in a different program called an OPM program. And I was a three year program. And I was like, all right, I'll do that. And I was doing that all while working at Sesame, setting all that up. Um, 
So it was really bad. Like when I was at Sesame Street, I did a couple of pilots for VH1. I did, <laughs> I like had all these different things going, mm-hmm. you know, but I was full time at Sesame. <laughs> and so um, I would not be in the office. Right. I said, hey, I'm at a meeting. I'm at a meeting. Right. And so anyway, that ended up, you know, coming to a head and, you know, we end up mutually agreeing to depart ways. But after that, I had five different businesses going, you know? So I was like, all right, you know, and I was nervous. I mean, it's probably one of the most nervous times I had. And cause I'd never been an entrepreneur before. So I didn't know, you know, how to have a regular life without benefits and, you know, um, the salary is like, all right, how do I, how do I even live my life like this? Like, during the time where I was producing on the side, I was always looking for a job, you know, um, during my MTV Sesame Street between that time. So I was always looking for, all right, well, what's my next opportunity? And then I finally married into, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm really going to do this. So luckily I had a, a real good friend of mine out of LA and she was an entrepreneur she's still an entrepreneur and like she's one of my biggest um motivators and so i'm just talking to her and i'm like so how do you do this how do you do this and you know i said what do you do about the 401k and you know how long do you wait for people to pay you and you know how strong do you get on collecting your payables i mean your receivables you know how do you deal with all that she's like corey if you're all in you got to be all in there is no parachute. There is no safety net. You got to be all in, all in. Mm-hmm. And from since then, I've been all in. All, and it's hard for people to understand that. I think. Um, yeah, because um, for for me, I mm-hmm. uh, I actually was working at a job for about four, three or four years, and and it was getting to the point where like I was just miserable. I was like people are like, you seem so upset all the time. And I'm thinking like, I'm just being normal, but my outside perception, people are seeing that better than I am. So Mm. I finally made a decision. I was doing, um, like I told you, camera work part-time on the side, Mm -hmm. but I would still go to work. And I just say, you know what, forget it. I'm just gonna gonna do it and go full out. So like three years now, I've been just doing independent stuff. And you're right, Mm -hmm. that whole entrepreneurship, it is hard and in today's time, like my generation and the younger generation, it's easy because they have access to so much information to, like you were saying, how do I do accounts payable? How do you do this? How do you do that? But still, some of them don't make that leap. So how would you, I guess you can say, with, with, the, with the way generation is today or today people are and trying to get that quick fame i guess you can say make that quick money get that quick money and there's so many young people who are making all this money but there's but people don't know they're still at the hand of someone higher it's not fully them it's somebody right. else so what right. what what would you i guess something you tidbit you could share with people as to i think you're going to get into it but what to expect is going full forward uh with this entrepreneurship yeah. So, you know, I uh, had a couple of conversations with folks that usually reach out to me and ask me the same question. And I say the same thing. There's, if you ever follow, I probably do, Mark Cuban, 
you know, um, a couple other folks out there, but, you know, he hit it on the head. It's everything is a sell. You're always selling. You know, I think we as African-Americans have a very complex way of who we are from our DNA, who we are today versus who we were 50 years ago, 75 years ago, 100 years ago, right? So we want to embrace our pride of being an African-American. And it's, you know, I went to school, I did all the right things, you know, I, um, you know, taking care of my family, um, really, you know, for me, I'm a big Christian, so I'm always in church and, you know, I have a strong belief in God, which I think is a very important part mm-hmm. of being an entrepreneur is having some faith that you can lean on the weather, well, no matter what that is, something that you can actually anchor down to some foundation. Mm-hmm. But we, we go through this thing of, I did, I'll say, sales. Like, oh, man, I'm not asking anyone for anything. You know, I'm going to make it on my own. I'm not asking anyone for anything. And if we can embrace, which is what one thing I think I've really embraced, is you can embrace being a salesperson, you'll always eat. You'll always, like, the one position I'm never going to shy away from if someone approaches me and says, hey, I want to do sales for you, I'll do that. I'll take that deal all day long, right? Because that means you're, you know how to figure out how to earn income. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you know, the only way we survive is if we know how to earn income. And so no matter what business we have, you've got to generate revenue. The only way you can generate revenue is having sales, having a product that someone feels is of value that they would pay for. And so um, I have a friend of mine that's uh, a big social media follower and he's got he's also acting when he got a job on a series current series and i my opinion i'm not i'm probably 50 to 60 percent sure part of him getting that job is he had two million plus followers so he had an asset because he had a group already following him so he had already been one of those guys that was outgoing and selling and was able to get people to really, you know, become an influencer. And so when he came to the table, he knew he wasn't just selling his acting abilities, he was also selling, hey, I got two million people that follow me too. Right, right. You know? So getting into opening yourself up to, you know, selling no matter what it is selling a product selling yourself from a instagram you know social media point of view that is you know the thing i think people really younger generation should really focus on because if you know how to sell you'll always have a job you'll always eat you will always eat because you know how to sell and you're not worried about the nose i think that i'll say for me my biggest fear is you know getting the nose and I get a lot of nose. And so, you know, how many doors am I going to knock on that I'm going to feel comfortable about? Right. And that's part of our, you know, our historical struggle is, well, why do I have to ask anyone for anything? Because I've worked and I've done everything I'm supposed to do to get into the place to be successful. Well, you did, but you know, you got to figure out how to generate revenue mm-hmm. and that generating revenue could be for yourself, for a company, you create value for yourself. So 
when I look at businesses and I look at who do you cut and who do you keep as animation as an example, well, you guys are producers, writers, you know, coordinators. The sell that um, the new boss sold was they're not generating revenue, enough revenue to justify the expense of keeping 300 people. And it's hard for you to back that up because you're a producer, you know, you're a writer, you're a coordinator, you're a production associate, you're an editor. You're not really generating revenue, right? And in, in the MTV structure, you created content, but our sales group was a whole different world. Mm -hmm. If you look at the sales group of MTV, I think three or four of them are CEOs now. And these are guys that we came up, I came up with, they were great sales guys, right? So, I don't, you know, there's like two or three guys I think that have gone on to really do well from our production side, but the sales guys, all of them are doing well because you're making money hand over fist at MTV if you were in sales. You know, the margins, I think at the time were like 30% margins, cable was king. Right. You know, and that's, you know, you just, you know how to bring in money. If I have a if I have a business like even like with the team, you know, I cherish those guys that are aggressive enough to say, "Hey, I want to go out and sell," and those guys are hard to find because we don't want to. It's hard for us to take the risk. Right, to be put out there and be vulnerable yeah. and everything. How yeah. does how does how does the selling apply to networking? Because when you meet people and introduce yourself, just hey, I'm so and so, I do this. That's like okay, well, great. You know, I mean, these like my buddy, he likes to say, oh, we should go pay to do this network meeting. We should go pay to do this. And I do understand the aspect of it being it's an investment because it's a potential mm -hmm. opportunity to help you to get in a bigger or open more doors and opportunities. But at the same time, it's like, am I really going to be able to get to talk to this person to for a potential or am I wasting my money? How yeah. does all, how does how does this networking apply and is selling a part of that as well? It is so you know been there done that too and on a much bigger scale right so I sponsored an investment group conference in Dubai with all Middle East and North Africa investors and consultants and did the same thing in Switzerland um, and these weren't small price points right these significant price points points as one of the lead excuse me one of the lead sponsors and what what I learned from that is yes the networking is great there's some of the guys I still keep in touch with 95% of the time at a networking event they're all in the same space that you are right everyone's trying to figure out how do I get ahead and then there's like 5% who are like alright I'm looking for me in the investment world, I'm looking at making investment. And so there's 400 people here and, you know, um, 20 of them are looking for the right people to marry, to make an investment with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we call it, it's a, it's a term we call it because I, I work with athletes. It's the big booty chick in the club, right? Everybody <laughs> wants the big booty chick. Everybody, when you do a network, you want the big booty chick. Like, right. That's what you come here for. Like, right. all right, I got to find a big booty chick. Like, that's, 
You know what I mean? Like that. And that's the whole thing of network is like, all right, you're trying to find that right, that right big booty chick. You'd be like, all right, this is good. And those I'm are hard going to home find. with her. Right. And guess what? Everybody wants her. Right. Right. Everybody wants her. Mark Cuban walks into a room. He's a big booty chick in the club. <laughs> right. Right. Everybody wants to give him Mark Cuban. Like, like, all right, let me give him Mark Cuban. So you're like, all right. And that's, you know, I think um, that's the thing about networking. It really is understanding, all right, who's going to be in the room? What can they do? They're going to add some value to me. Or am I going to be one of, you know, 80 guys trying to go after the one big booty chick? Right. So you got to figure out how to level those odds from a networking point of view. So, all right, I want to go to a place where there's 10 big booty chicks and 20 guys are trying to date. That gives me, you know what? I got to be a little competitive, but the odds are more in my favor. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not one of 80 trying to get one. So when I look at networking events and I, you know, I do majority, honestly, majority of my networking events that I go to now are more on the alumni from the Harvard Business School or Harvard alumni, because what I find, which is crazy, is that they're, they just see the world different. I don't say because they went to school. So the program I was in is a former CEO, well, former, is a CEO program. Mm-hmm. And so all my peers are CEOs. And so I have peers I talk to on a regular basis from that are billionaires to just out here struggling, hustling every day. So we meet the whole gamut, but they're all in tune on how do we create value for each other to grow some type of business. And that's the one thing, that's a commonality that we all have. And so if I go to a conference, an OPM conference, then I know, all right, some of these guys may be looking for opportunities to sell their business, merge their business, or they may have just sold their business and looking to invest, you know, someone that they can see the same world with, but it is, um, it is one of those things where if I'm looking at a networking event, I'm definitely figuring out who's going to be in the room. You got to, the biggest thing is who's going to be in the room. Mm-hmm. Once I figure out who's going to be in the room, I can figure out if I want to be at that event or not. And, you know, you find that out over looking at, all right, usually you look for a list of who's invited and right. who's confirmed to come. And you're like, all right, well, this person, maybe this, this person, maybe that. And I get these emails all the time now for different conferences. And, you know, they all list, and traditionally they list like 40 guys that are family offices, CEOs. And then you got to get into the details of, all right, well, do you have the ability to make a decision? Right. Or are you there just to represent the decision makers? So those you give, you know, for me anyways, I would give, you know, 10 to 20 percent of my interest. If you're a decision maker and you're really a player and you're there to meet new people, then I'm going to engage and have a conversation. I, I can't predict if we'll do some business together or not. The only way I could. The only way that traditionally for me anyways that happens is the people I like and they like me. Mm-hmm. You know, my numbers are important, but not as important as the relationship. So that also applies to when you're doing work, period, because 
I can work with somebody who might have good numbers, but if I can't stand that person, I'm yeah. not, I can't work with them. Yeah. Can't. Yeah. I can't mess with you. Right. 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 So that's the way I see networking. Yeah. I think it's, um, figuring out who's going to be in the room. If the right people are going to be in the room, do we like each other? Cause you, you know, for me, when you work with, or when someone invests with you, that's a marriage. Mm-hmm. So you're married. There's no divorce until you return the money that they invested or you guys go to court. You're like, look, I want to wind down this investment somehow. But, you know, when you partner with someone from money is exchange, that's a marriage. And you got to figure out, like, all right, do I want to be married to this person? Am I going to do I want to hang out and have a beer with this person or just kick it? you know, with this person. And it's, can I, can I feel comfortable when I'm doing that? Mm-hmm. Can I be myself when I'm doing that? Can right. I be my true who I am? Or do I need to wear a suit like, and tie all the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, right, right. So I want to go back to something you said in regarding to getting people together to have the same idea to build a business. Now for our people, as far as black people in the community, we know the struggles and stuff that we go through. And there are times that people will come through and say, hey, we can do this to help build this. And the big part of it is real estate. A friend of mine, he is in a group that's trying to buy certain areas in Baltimore to help regentrify that, but sell that off back to black people. The only issue is, is that it's almost like black people are like, okay, we've heard that same song, whatever, yada, yada, yada. What are the challenges that you see as far as us trying to invest back into each other? Because we, I mean, it's there. I mean, there are people there. There's people like you. There's like, you know, tons of people. Because I see it as that, you know, once someone's successful in the black community makes it, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, I guess the word is, is, is just hater, you know, like, cause a lot of people, yeah. successful people that make yeah. it here, they leave and that's just yeah. in Baltimore. So I can only, and I've heard it before. I forget who said it, you know, if I make, uh, if I'm success, my success, I can't sometimes go back to my hometown cause that's where my worst enemies are. And I'm from there. You know, you would think it'd be the opposite. Hey man, come home. Let's celebrate. Hey, yeah, great. Good, good to see you all that. No, that's where your worst enemies are is where you're back home. Yeah. So yeah. what, yeah. what are the challenges that you're seeing and that we, we just need to, to, to work on because I mean, with what you're doing with the arena league, being the first black <laughs> owner in New York history to do that. And I believe I was reading an article, you know, Michael Jordan is the first, you know, majority owner or his sole owner you know, yeah. in professional sports, yeah. you know, how is that, how is that possible? You know? So it's, you know, what it comes down to is, is history. I mean, you know, we have, um, we have the distress, you know, the stress disorder of being slaves and, there's um there's a podcast I listened to the other day just talking about it right, and they were just saying how there's no way you cannot have a stress disorder being African American in the United States it's impossible, right because 
you know, that history is real. That history has affected, it's no different than, you know, the, um, you know, the cave-in moving into walking upright. Like, you change, your DNA will change over time based on the conditions that you live in. And so what happens is it's hard for us, and I'm back in my community too, it's hard for us to believe that this is going to work, whatever it is. You know, I saw, I watched the uh, the banker yesterday with. Oh, yeah. Um, saw that Anthony Mackey, yeah. Samuel Jackson. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he, you know, don't get too big for your britches. You know, that was basically what the white people were saying. Like, you can't do this. You may be right, but you ain't right. Right. And so that's what we, I mean, it's hard to take that from your great-grandmother to your grandfather to your grandmother, grandfather to your mother and father to your generation. That's carried along. You know, that's not left behind. That fear is real. You know, it's like lynching. Lynchings served a purpose of fear for us that we still, you know, it's hard for us to kind of get out of that anxiety of, wow, you know what, this could really work. Even when you look at, you know, use, um, COVID-19. So we have a fitness business in Brooklyn and, you know, I was able to get PPP dollars, I was able to get a couple of grants, I'm getting this EIDL, but all my cohorts are, you know, my peer group, they didn't even go for it. Hmm. And I know, you know, that's basically almost free money if you use it right. I know they could have used the money, but they're like, I'm not doing that. And these are smart people. I mean, these aren't you're dummies. It just the system's beating them down so much that it's not even an option, you know. And so the the challenge is how do we work together but feel like we're going to be successful, right? Like it, it's a matter. So like, you know. I don't know what age group you're in, but you've seen good times, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, right. I'm 30. I'm 30. All right. <laughs> so if you, I used to watch it every, it used to be on, like I watched the original. And every week, because I was living in the hood too, you feel like you had this optimism that they're going to get out, right? Oh, man, they're going to get out the hood. They're going to get out the hood. They're going to get out the hood. And then I think the finale was... Thumb was getting married and her husband was going to the NFL and they were going to all get out the hood. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like uh, he was going down the aisle to marry her and blew out his knee. So now they don't get out the hood anymore. <laughs> and so it's always, I think we always feel like something else is going to go wrong. And I guess that is that that and the belief of, I can, it's not, you know, how I many. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg's are you seeing from an African-American point of view? And that's because, you know what? It's hard to believe that this will really happen. Now, keep in mind, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg are rare in any air. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you look at the top billionaires on Forbes, you know, outside of Robert Smith, you know, you got Michael Jordan, who's Michael Jordan, right? You got Oprah Winfrey, who's Oprah Winfrey, these aren't your average, where'd you come from? These are people that excelled at their highest profession. Right. 
and then became. It wasn't Zuckerberg who came out of nowhere. Right? Like you're not getting even with Robert Smith. Robert Smith didn't come out of nowhere. I used to hang out with Robert Smith for years. Mm-hmm. So you know, Robert had to work his way up. Right, he had to meet the right people and make sure he had the right connections. And you know what? Then his talent was able to flourish to become who he is. But it's you know it's um it's hard for us to believe that we could take these risks because historically we just it just hasn't worked out for us. You know, not to the common common person, right? To Serena Williams, you know, uh Tiger Woods, you know, um Mike Tyson, Michael Jordan. That's a different level. That's a different world. Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, those circles are different than our circles, right? And I've been in those circles in a little bit now, like big time. Those circles become unique because in the room, it's like you were talking about asking about the networking. If I'm a, a white guy and worth a couple of million dollars, let's say even 50 to $100 million, and a friend of mine goes, hey, we're going to go to this dinner and Michael Jordan's going to be there. Yeah, I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And Michael Jordan wants to talk to me. I'm going to listen. <laughs> right. Right? So Mike's like, hey, I want to buy the Bobcats. So what do you need, Mike? <laughs> right. How can, how can I do to help you? How can I help you, right? So that's, you know, Corey Galloway goes to a room. He'll be like, yeah, how can I help you? They're like, I don't know who you are, you know. So that's that is um, the challenge we have of believing, like, all right, you know what? This may be a hard road to tell, but if we're going to do this together, we got to believe that we're going to, and it's not going to be easy. You know, that's probably one of the biggest frustrations I have with working with our people is you look at Silicon Valley, and I'm in Silicon Valley quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of young, bright kids out there who are like, yo, I'm going to go out there. I don't need a salary. Did you hear about cost of living? Do you know how much? No, no, I know, I know. Well, they also have parents, right? That's right. when, that's when this generational thing starts. The generational wealth, right? Play, right. So, I don't need a salary because my mom and dad got me. So now I can take the risk of, you know what? I'm gonna go out here and I'm an intern. I'm gonna take ten thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars a year, and I'm gonna be in this company called Amazon. I don't know anything about it, but you know, I'm just gonna. I believe in this guy and he's going to make it work. And they said, I don't know who he is, you know, and they're able to take those risks. You know, we can't, like you just said, like the cost of living in uh, San Francisco, in Silicon Valley, like we can't take those type of risks, you know? So we're in this space that we want to be entrepreneurial. We're dying to be entrepreneurial. And can we afford to take the risks? Because the country's built the way it's built for African Americans, we our parents and our grandparents aren't like, hey, don't worry about it. Take the risk. I've got some savings here. I can fund you for the next two years. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes anxiety, right? That anxiety of working together. Because, yeah, we're all in this. The four of us are all in this together. But my money may be tight. Right. And what am I going to do now? I gotta look out for myself. Yeah, I know we agreed all four of us to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C. My money's tight. I, you know, I got no one to lean on except for myself. 
And, you know, this isn't taking off the way I wanted it to. My money's tight. I got to bounce. And that, you know, that's where the structure of this country hurts the African-American because we, the only way we're going to be able to change that wealth gap is to have some type of reset. My reset opinion on it is free education, undergrad, grad school, medical school, law school, PhD. If you're African-American, you should get that for free. Because we can't give you all, can't give everyone checks. Right. You know, but how do you change, how do you change that gap? How do you pursue your entrepreneurial ventures, which you believe are true, and you've gone to school, you've done all the work, and you're like, I'm going to take some risks, but my circumstances that my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents are in doesn't allow me in 2020 to take the risks that I want to take. And that's not just, you know, me, you, that's the entire community, 95 to 98% of the entire community. So how do you, how do you work together knowing that it's not each individual's decision. It's a, it's a structural decision that was made from the country. This isn't by chance, this is by strategy. So this is, strategy that the United States government has put in place. That's the most effective strategy anyone's ever created. <laughs> and so now here we are, 2020, trying to figure out, all right, well, I've, I've gotten through Jim Crow, you know, I've got to get a fair education, I've gotten through Redline, you know, but all those things hurt the generation and the two generations before us. So, yeah, you know what? We're at the 10-yard line. They're at the 90-yard line on a 100-yard field and say, all right, go. So, you know, you guys got an 80-yard head start. We can't make up that. Like it, it, It's impossible to make up that difference. Mm-hmm. And that difference is the confidence that we need to have when we go out for our entrepreneurial, you know, dreams and ideas. And then when you take all that and you go to the investment community, to the banking community, and it's a white guy there who really has some savviness and understands history of this country, he's looking at you. He's like, I don't know you, but I know 98% of your kind doesn't have access to capital. So you got a zero before you walked in the door. Right. Right. Where'd you get the money from? I know you, your cousins, your uncles, your dad, granddad, we made sure you guys didn't have anything. So how are you taking risks? That's the hard, that's, that is the hard part. Did you experience some of this when you um, were pursuing or started doing your ventures? I know you're in, you started off with the uh, Harrisburg Arena League. I think you did it with Marcus Colston. Yeah, with Marcus. Um, Did you experience any of this when you started like that or you like your investment firm? Yeah. So, you know, um, it is, so when it started out, we started working with athletes, right? And so athletes come from the same areas we come from right? Same communities. But 
you know, on a much smaller, lower level, they are in that world of a Michael Jordan, Oprah Winfrey, you know, Eddie Murphy kind of deal. They're on an elevated level compared to us, not as high as Oprah or, you know, Jordan, but they're definitely on a, so that network of people around them, nine times out of 10 are white. And they're usually saying, hey, you know what? I don't know if your friends really have the ability to help you the way I can help you. And that is seeded into a lot of pro athletes, which is why they just believe like, yeah, all my friends, they don't have anything. And the only people I know that have something are white. So I, you know, I end up transitioning to that. And so as I was coming out, um, just working with folks, I, I knew it was going to be a tough road to tell, which is why I was hell bent on getting as much education as possible. The, I'd say the biggest flaw in my strategy getting to where I am today was thinking that education was going to be the end all be all. Education was just a place for me to get into the door, but I still needed the aggressive sales tools in order to utilize the education that I have to convert that into some type of um, positive outcome. And so after you get all the education and you're in this world and you're kind of talking to people and you can talk to talk and everything, then you guys start selling. And then when you start selling, people are like, well, I see you went to school, but where's the money coming from, mm-hmm. right? The luckiest thing I had was I did go to Harvard Business School and two of my classmates are my biggest investors. So without going to Harvard Business School, I would have been out here hustling, trying to figure it out. But, you know, and those were personal relationships I developed, right? So those are relationships where business is good, business is bad. You know, the arena team business is not good. And, you know, we have fights about that because they're not sure about the decision, but they're friends and we still work together and we're still like, all right, you know, how do we fix this team? How do we, you know, put more money into it to fix it? What do you think we should be doing? Because we believe in you. Those are the relationships that are hard to find, but when you find those, you hold on to those. And so when you look at talking to people, they don't know that in my background because right? not public because the people I deal with do not like to be public at all. Mm-hmm. When I go to have a conversation about, and it's a, you know, uh, three years just to get the team off the ground because people didn't want to take the meetings. Cause they're like, well, we don't know if you have the money. We don't know if you have the money. And then it became, all right, deposit after deposit after deposit after deposit, writing a check, writing a check, writing a check. And I'm like, all right, there's a ton of money going out the door, but, the money's not coming, coming back. back in. Yeah. How do we get this money to come back in? And that's like, actually, that's where we are from an inflection point of view right now with the team is, and this is all teams. So it's not an African-American thing. I think it's hurts us more as African-Americans because I've got to be more in the sales, right? So I got to be more in the selling on the sponsor side and selling on, you know, the network side, the, um, the television side. So it's constantly selling ticket sales, selling um, season tickets, constantly selling, selling to get to play at an arena, 
So I'm constantly selling, selling, selling. And then when you bring people in, you want people that have that mindset of you got to constantly be selling. But the people that, you know, I'll say my network are very smart, um, worked in marketing, worked in, you know, everything but sales. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're like, all right, cool, you do it pretty good. Can you put me on? I'm like, all right, great. Let's, I'll put you on, I'll put you on. But we all can't get paid for being smart. You know, <laughs> we got to bring in the money. We got we to do the sales part of it. Right. Um, to answer your question, and there's a long-winded answer on my answers. It is, people are going to look at you when you walk in the door because you're African-American. If you go to Chase, um, they have a new program for um, black businesses. They did a research that talked to all these banks on the minority, you know, minority chief diversity offer side and all that stuff. And they were saying something effective, 98% of African-American businesses are worth between $500,000 to $5 million. So, and that's the research they did with um, National Urban League. Mm -hmm. And so think about that, 98% Having an American businesses are five hundred, yeah, five hundred thousand to five million. That's nothing. Nothing. So when I walk in the door and I say I have a black business, what's the first thing you want to say as a banker? I know no you. Deal. Right. I know you, even though I don't know you, because you're black. And I already ran the numbers. I know where you should be. Now I'd say, I'm maybe I'm an outlier because I have, you know, partners that are riding with me, but. For the most part, it's like, I know who you are already. And it's not that I know who you are because I'm being cynical. I'm, I know you are by design because the strategy that my dad, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather put into place has me in this seat, has you in that seat. So I know who you are by design. Which is hard. I mean, it's, you know, that, see, that is the hardest thing that if we start to embrace that and then really challenge, you know, this country on, we're not getting ahead by design, by strategy. That is, you know, if we could ever break through that, that's when you start changing the dynamic. That's why I believe in free education. Because mm -hmm. then people will know, oh, you don't have any debt by design, by strategy. Right. So you can pursue your dreams because you don't have student loans. You're not weighed down by the things that your forefathers before you were weighed down with. So now you can take some more risks because you just don't have that level of debt that you're coming out to the world with. Which is why Robert Smith did that with Morehouse. Right. Pay for their uh, tuition. That's that's I'm wiping out a worry that will carry you for the next 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. I'm taking that away from you to allow you to grow yourself into your ambitions and your dreams. That's the only way we can really change this strategy that the country put on us 400 years ago. Now, my question to the, to you about that, um, he did that. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think anyone else has done that or offered Oprah that did. Oprah okay Oprah, Oprah. so those yeah. those two upper echelons of course they're on Forbes or the billionaires but mm -hmm. 
there's still I believe there was a, a telethon I think uh, some celebrities did and I think including Oprah where they um, people could call in and donate to help people with COVID-19 but it's like wait a minute you guys are already millionaires to 100 millionaires to billionaires you know if you wanted to help why don't you use some of your assets to help those because you're calling people who are already struggling to donate to people who are struggling it's kind of like that doesn't that's an oxymoron it doesn't make sense why Mm -hmm. why is it that you know these not not affluent i guess you can say affluent but upper echelon black people in the community why is it seem like there's only one or two of them that are willing to do something that they they understand that the design and you know in order to help us i need to help start to create that generational wealth so what what's the gap that's you know that other celebrities i guess you can say or people who are up there as far as the percentage wealth wise aren't coming together to help solve that mm-hmm. because having nothing is as real as waking up in the morning and having breakfast to an African-American, no matter how rich you get, right? That you, you can't get rid of that, you know, that, um, that history that's come along with where you came from. Right. So use Michael Jordan is a good example, right? You know, he's first generation. He grew up not like, you know, you grew up in a middle class, right? Comfortable lifestyle, but he, you know, he's very connected to where he, where what his past is. Now you talk to a Kennedy, right? A Kennedy doesn't even comprehend going broke. Like, what does that mean? You know, I don't even know what that, I mean, you know, my great-grandfather sold liquor and, like, made a ton of money. Like, we have a compound. Like, you know, I got cousin, 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 cousins who are all wealthy. So me getting a zero, probably not going to happen. When Rockefeller, I'm definitely not getting a zero. Yeah. Right, because we diversified our family portfolios. So we own Apple, we own this, we own that. We have a venture fund in Silicon Valley. We have old school real estate in New York. Like we're so diverse Shoot, If we go broke, this entire country goes broke. Right. Now you talk to an NBA player, right? Now I'm not gonna say LeBron cause LeBron is one of the most unique athletes that I know from a business point of view from what I've seen him doing. Well, you know, say any other random NBA player who's got a $100 million deal, right? Building up those people around you makes you feel like you may drown, right, and lose all your wealth because that's the precondition when you get into that world of pro athletes or entertainers. You're... you're, um, the people that are around you are to help you maintain who you are, but not thinking about how you can change an entire generation in your circle. And so I'll, um, is that why a lot of them have to, uh, when they make it, 
their friends got to be on and then they got to take care of this so many households for their family. And then it's like once it's over, it's like, well, I still got to take care of six households. It's like, wait, where you have six houses or like what's going on? Yeah. And, that's, you know, and think about that. That's by design. Right. Like that's by design that that one person got through and the other six didn't. You know, and so there are people I know people that just want to really hold on to what they have because they're so nervous and scared of, well, I can be right back in the house with them in 10 years if I don't do this right. So I'm not going to spend and I'm not going to invest anything into anything. I'm going to maybe put a thousand dollars here, a thousand dollars there, but I'm not putting out any real, you know, dollars because. I can I could be that person on the phone saying I need money and that's real to me because I grew up like that. That's you know what I mean like how do you go from I grew up in the hood I got out of the hood and now I want to help others because the first thing you think about it with your advisor if he's white he's gonna tell you is they're gonna bring you back down. And you'll be right back down there with them. So you need to protect yourself. And that's where, you know, that's where the challenge comes from when you pop out and you become a pro athlete. And you're not, I mean, you're not making uh, generation wealth. You're making good wealth to take care of yourself and hopefully you have a comfortable life for your children. Um, you know, and that's just the average pro athlete, which is still only what? point twenty five percent of the world right you know how much are, how much can they do and they're worried about themselves they're just worried about I don't want to go broke again I want to go back to that aspect of the family uh, I mean you've partners with Marcus Colson you've dealt with NFL players for your firm um, and I'm not sure for you if you're in business with some of your friends but what are the advantage and disadvantages because once you're in the gut with somebody i mean the gutter with somebody it's like okay we're in this together but once you make it successful i mean it's rare that i've seen a good story come out where friends and family you know are not a burden to that successful person but a majority Mm -hmm. of time especially in our community friends and family can be like the worst thing to have that's yeah that's real i mean so I'll give you the good part and I'll give you, you know, the rough part about it. So the, the good part is you're able to allow the people around you to become independent and make their own way. So I worked with an athlete who had just signed a $100 million deal. And the first thing I told him was his brother just got killed. Uh, his other brother was going to commit suicide during a game and they had to pull him off the field for it. And so here's what we're going to do. He had a sister and brother still living in his hometown where he played. So they're still in the elements. They're still in the hood, you know. Sister's living in a motel, not, you know, having a great life. And it's like, for me, it's probably more my, you know, individual point of view less business point of view, personal point of view. You got to get them out of that environment. You got to get them out of that environment. So what we end up doing is we end up moving the brother and sister to California 
to get a license and a trade, get their driver's license. We rented an apartment for them that they could both live in and just get them to start over. They had, I think it was a year, they have a year uh, salary, like 5,000 a month and pay for their housing to get them on their own. Once that was up, it was up, but it allowed them to, they had certain things they had to do to qualify to get their monthly payment. So they had to go to class, had to make sure they were pacing to get to the right place. When you do that, then it allows you to be your own person, you know, versus depending on, you know, my brother to take care of me. No, I'm going to stand on my own. I'm going to teach you how to fish. I'm not going to give you fish. Mm -hmm. I only have so many fish. Right. If I teach you how to fish, you're good, right? And that's where, you know, I hold, and I had this idea way before LeBron came on the scene. But that's, LeBron is the blueprint of what I designed before LeBron came in. If you really embrace your friends, but your friends got to be motivated too. Right, you can't have friends that just like sleeping on your couch, and that's their lot in life. You made it, and I made it, so we good. You gotta have friends that are like, you know, keep going. Have, um, what's the other kid? The agent. Oh, um, I know who you're talking about. His agent, yeah. And he's they're all doing well, but like LeBron, like, all right, you gotta go work at CAA. He said to CAA, yo, you got to hire my boy to learn the business. So he learned the business for like three or four years. He learned the business. Butts is behind to be able to say, all right, I'm ready to do this. Lamar said, all right, I'm ready. I can back you on this. Right. So now he's his own person, right? He doesn't doesn't need LeBron for anything. Right now, he reverenced LeBron, Anthony Davis. He's like five at the top. You know, guys in the league, Richie, I think it is. Yeah. And so LeBron taught him how to fish versus giving him fish. Yeah, and that's how you rich Paul, right? And that's how it that's how it should work. That's the good part. That's how it should be like, all right, I need you that individual to be motivated to make their own way. Now the other side of that is, you know, is where I'm I've had challenges too, is people feel like, hey, well, you've made it. Can you put me on so I get a paycheck? Now, I got jobs I got to get done. And if I'm paying you and those jobs aren't getting done, I'm wasting money, money and right. I'm, looking, I'm looking bad in front of my partners because they're like, dude, what the hell's going on? And there's no... It's got to be a grasp of the concept of I've got to bust my behind because if I bust my behind and we're successful, we're all successful. Not, well, you know what? I went to undergrad, I went to grad school, and you know what? I should get hired because I'm smart. And you know what? I can add value. The only way you add value to a business is you're growing the top line or you're saving me on the bottom line. When I'm cutting you a check, that's cutting my bottom line. So you gotta figure out, all right, here's how I'm gonna make money for you. And that's where you get into the challenges of working with family and friends, because, you know, I'll use family, you know, where I had, you know, 
I've hired family five times and nine times out of 10, almost 10 times out of 10, it just doesn't work out. <laughs> it just doesn't work. It's, you know, it's, everyone feels like they're privileged and it's like, dude, I'm busting my behind over here. We're not in a place to feel like we're privileged. Like we got to survive, you know? So that's been, you know, the, uh, the downside of it is the friends and family have to understand they have to make their own way. They have to, only thing I can afford to give you is a platform for you to be great. If you don't want to be great, doesn't matter what platform I give you, you're going to do it no matter what, you know, whether I have you sweeping floors or have you running a division, if you don't want to be great, you're not going to be great. Speaking of platforms, what are you seeing that some, uh, of the people on the platforms are misleading younger people into believing what success is. Um, you know, cause a lot of them, are, let's take IG, it's the biggest one. I mean, it's a lot of capture moments. This is what's happening now. This is me now, but long-term, I don't even know if those people understand where they are, where they're trying to go long-term, but the people, but younger kids see that and they think, oh, well, that's what I want. I want this long term. I mean, I want this uh, this instant success. Like, what are some of the things that you think um, need to be done influence wise to help younger generation understand what success really is and that how long of a process it is? Yeah, I think, you know, it, success is and I've mentored, you know, kids that have graduated recently and, you know, you try to say, hey, here's how you should go, but everyone's their own person. If you're not figuring out how to, no one owes you anything, right? No one, no one's like, and the thing is, your parents always let you believe that, like, oh, you're so special, you're so special, until you get into the real world, and they're like, who the hell are you, <laughs> you know? And so it is, you've got to figure out how to earn your keep. I think if you look at, um, and I didn't follow her that much and my wife does, Kylie Jenner. And like, she made her own way by just being popular on social media. People aren't paying for her because, well, she was a model, but people aren't paying for her because she's like, oh, I'm here, I'm Kylie Jenner. It's like, no, actually I have something content that people are interested in and I've created value for myself. And so once you figure out like, all right, how do I create value for myself? And how do I sell myself to get some type of, you know, uh, as right now say revenue from, you know, what I can deliver, then I'm actually creating a business. But until someone's willing to cut a check to me for what I'm offering, then I'm just wasting my time. So, yeah, that I just, you know, I, I go back to sales. Like if you can do sales, you can do anything like, you know, you and you'll be marketable you'll be you know you have your options of what i want to do you know um that's really and i know i said probably an old school way of thinking but it is uh it is where i think people can really strive they say you know what i'm gonna focus on selling whatever it is i don't you know i don't know whatever it is you know it could be but yeah awesome well in closing, man, I, I appreciate you for coming on. This was fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I, I hope things kick off with the arena. Like I know this pandemic is holding things, you know, from yeah. happening and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to come up there to New York. I love going to New York, it's a city that never sleeps. So I'll be able to come up yep. there and see a game. Okay, very good. All right, good deal. Good deal. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening and checking us out. Hope you like, share, and subscribe. And we'll be back for more. We're signing out. See everyone.